Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are talking with Christina Sandifer, the Executive Vice President of the Goldwater Institute. Christina is the co-author of a new book, The Cornerstone of Liberty, Private Property Rights in 21st Century America. As a physician, I deal with this every single day of my life. And people wonder why healthcare is expensive. It's expensive because we have to go through hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle just to do things that we know are right. We have a physician who has practiced any reasonable amount of time understands disease processes, and from experience knows what works and what does not work. When you have a federal government that says, well, with this diagnosis, you will try treatment one first. If that doesn't work, you will try treatment two. If that doesn't work, you'll try treatment three. Well, what if I already know that treatment one and two are not going to work? I need to go right to treatment three, but I'm not allowed to do that because this is really all about control. That's what we're looking at here. What government, when it gets big, and the proponents of big government seek only one thing. They don't seek the betterment of humankind. They don't seek to make things better. They only seek to control individual activity. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, that not only in private property do we have this situation with eminent domain, but we also have what, what I would argue is actually far more common and, and really much more dangerous, and that is regulation on property rights. This is what we're talking about now, or what a lawyer would look at as a regulatory taking. Uh, and, and all of these things are examples, really, of regulatory takings, taking of your right to property. But in the, back in the, in the traditional context, when we talk about land or homes, what this means is this is when government doesn't come in and take your land outright, right? They don't say, they don't come and say, we're going to take away your home. You're going to move out and we're going to, we're going to pay you for that. Instead, they pass a law that regulates your right to use that land somehow. So it says you can't use it in a certain way. You can't sell it. You can't build on your property. Can't paint your home a certain color. Uh, what you can't rent out your home to overnight guests. Something like that. They pass a law regulating the way that you can use your property. Now, the reason this is dangerous is because if we look at the Constitution, if it, the government takes away your property by eminent domain, it has to pay you for it, right? I mean, it's, it, it is true that after the Kelo case, at least when we were talking about federal law, that the government can get away with taking away your property for just about any reason. 
But at the very least, if the government's going to come take away your home or take away your property, it has to pay you for it. But when the government regulates away your property value, it's still taking away your property rights just as much as if it had taken that property from you. But a lot of times the government will argue that since it doesn't technically take title to your land, it hasn't removed your property from you entirely, then it doesn't have to pay you for that taking. And that's what we call a regulatory taking. It's really, really terrible because people are forbidden from using their property, but they're still stuck with taxes, loan payments, and and liability. If somebody comes onto your property and slips and falls, so you are still responsible for this property, uh, but yet the value has decreased. It may be worth nothing to you anymore, and the government gets away scot-free. That's a regulatory taking. You know, you bring up the pro- the concept of, of property taxes. Um, I am really totally against property taxes. Property taxes are a tax on your freedom based upon, obviously, what we've been talking about. And that's our founders understood that. Uh, that's why they forbid... Uh, they forbid a tax on income because income really is a taking of your private property, not to mention it's also a tax on productivity. Uh, and we would be so much better off in this country if what we taxed was consumption instead of uh, of work or income, don't you think? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that any tax, of course, is going to be in some sense theft if it isn't voluntary. But I think that if you're taxing consumption, that's certainly a more fair way of taxing. You're taxing an activity and you're not taxing somebody's property. And I think it was it's really essential to think about property in terms, again, broader than just your land or your home. You're absolutely right that income is property. This is the fruits of our labor. This is this is what our founders meant when they talked about that, right? This is something that when I when I produce something that is of value to my neighbors, to my community, and they pay me for it, that income then is my property. And yet the government over the years has come in, and, and now we, we're, we're subject to so many different levels of income taxation as well. Uh, we're, we, we are, our income is taxed by our local government sometimes. It's taxed by our state governments, federal government. Businesses are taxed. Uh, separately. And then, of course, we still have to pay things like sales tax and property tax. And when you look at the amount of taxation upon taxation that is leveled upon just any particular individual, it's a wonder that any of us still have any resources to be able to enjoy ourselves or express ourselves um, or have any incentive to keep working and creating and producing. And that's really what regulation does, is it takes away incentive to be productive members of society and to create a life for oneself. You remind me of when, for the very short time that I actually practiced in New York City, the taxation was, was unbelievable. We had federal income tax, state income tax, county income tax, city income tax, occupancy tax, business tax, school tax. By the time we got through, I wasn't working for myself. I was working to support a whole range of governments and their activities, most of which are really truly unconstitutional to begin with. Well, and that's that's another good point too. Is that you know, government, if it if it has an infinite revenue source, then it is not only 
it's not only taking away resources from people, uh, it is it now is empowered to be able to regulate more and to intrude upon our freedoms to an even greater degree because it has the means to be able to do that. You know, you mentioned that the Goldwater Institute, that one of the things that we do here is we fight these unconstitutional regulations. We stand up for people's freedoms in court. And that is a very, very important thing. There are a number of groups that do that. And it's important because when when government, say, comes in and takes away your home or regulates away your right to use your property, if you're just one individual, the cost of hiring a lawyer to try to fight that regulation can sometimes be prohibitive. On the government side, however, they can lawyer up as much as they want and they can drag you through years and years and years of court. And, you know, we talk about these Supreme Court cases. I think sometimes people don't realize that these cases can take five, ten years sometimes before they're resolved by the Supreme Court. The government has infinite resources because it continues to tax and overtax its citizens and uses that money then as a weapon against people in order to take away their rights. So it's it's an it's an extremely important thing to think about the taxation side as well because when government has less revenue it's not only leaving more of our property to us where it rightfully belongs but that is also a way to sort of clip its wings if you will and and you know keep keep government within its rightful size our our founding fathers did not imagine our our federal government would be as large and intrusive and bureaucratic as it is today Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum will return right after a quick break. We are talking with Christina Sandifer, the Executive Vice President of the Goldwater Institute. Christina is the co-author of a new book, The Cornerstone of Liberty, Private Property Rights in 21st Century America. I mean, they had Article Article 1, uh, Section 8, where they listed the enumerated powers, and their concept was, here, federal government, we really don't want you at all, but we do recognize there are several things that you can do better for all of us than we can do individually. So here you got 18 things that you can do. The rest of that stuff in Amendment 9 and, and Amendment 10, uh, those things remain the property of the states and the citizens of the state because there are also obviously been courts decisions that say that citizens have Tenth Amendment rights as well as states. So that was the whole concept. Is And that's what one of the problems that's developed is we have, we have now a class of professional politicians, professional federal legislators and bureaucrats whose livelihood occurs in Washington, D.C., and they never have to come home truly and face the music. When the founders wrote the Constitution, they expected people to go to Washington for a couple months a year and then come back and live by the same rules that they had just imposed on everyone else. That, obviously, is out the window, and that's why we have this self-perpetuating bureaucracy with all of the negatives that that entails. And they envisioned our court system would be one of the many checks on that sort of power to keep that bureaucracy, to keep those lawmakers in check, to make sure that they aren't passing laws that they're exempt from, that don't apply to them, to make sure that they aren't violating the Constitution. That's why we have the judicial system. And although I still think that the judicial system does serve as some sort of meaningful check on what legislators and bureaucrats can do, 
these cases that we're discussing today are evidence that, in fact, the judiciary is asleep uh, on the job. And the Kilo case is a great example of that. When we look at rights like free speech rights, for example, the, the, the freedom of speech and expression and association, when you go to court to defend your right to speak freely, the, the government is forced to prove that it should have the power to take away that right or to silence you, to curb that speech. And it has to have a really darn good reason for doing that. If the government's going to take away my right to, to freedom of speech, it has to have a very, very good reason for that. And it's got to prove that what it's doing is achieving that goal. And if not, the presumption is that I am free to be able to speak my mind. The sad truth is that property rights, private property rights, are second-class rights in this country today. When the government wants to infringe on my private property rights, when it wants to take away my home by eminent domain or regulate my rights away, and I go into court to try to defend myself, believe it or not, it's guilty until proven innocent. I have to prove as a property owner that I should be able to be free, that I should be able to keep my property or that I should be able to use my property as I see fit. The rule used to be I have a right to use my property as I see fit so long as I'm not harming someone else. And if I'm harming someone else, the government has to prove it. Instead, today, it, 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 property rights are, uh, and regulations are subject to something that, that lawyers call the rational basis test. And at the Goldwater Institute and those in the freedom movement sort of laugh that what the rational basis test means is that the basis doesn't have to be rational and there doesn't have to be a basis. What does that mean? Well, that means that basically government can come up with any reason in fact, it doesn't even have to have a reason for regulating away your property rights. It doesn't have to be rational, and the government doesn't have to give a reason or defend its regulations. You go into court and you argue that the government shouldn't be able to violate your property rights. You have to prove to the court, you have to prove to the judge that you should be able to be free and keep your property. And the judge is required by law to think of any good reason there might be out there for the government, basically to do the government's homework for it. And if the, if the judge can come up with any reason for that regulation, then they defer to the government. That's why in the Kelo case, the Supreme Court said, you know, maybe in Connecticut, these government officials thought, well, we can get more tax revenue if we take away homes from private citizens like Suzette Kelo, if we take away their homes, and we give it to rich corporations so that they can build really pretty high-rises and really expensive shopping centers and eateries, that's going to be more tax revenue and more jobs for the government. And so that's the reason, and that's a public use. That's why that case came out that way, because the judges are required to come up for reasons for the government, and if they can come up with any reason that they think might be plausible, they've got to rubber stamp what the government did. That is a travesty. We are talking with Christina Sandifer, the executive vice president of the Goldwater Institute. Christina is the co-author of a new book, The Cornerstone of Liberty, Private Property Rights in 21st Century America. That's a must read. And we are discussing private property rights. Uh, there's, it is so important. Private property rights are the basis of our freedom. Uh, and that's why we're spending this time talking about it. You know, Christina, recently th there was a, a case that was decided in the Supreme Court, and that was Murr versus Wisconsin, uh, and that involved uh, t takings. Uh, and so 
I think it would be useful if we could uh, discuss that case. Yeah, let's talk about Murr versus Wisconsin. Uh, so this case involved regulatory takings, regulations on private property like we were talking about before. And again, today the government can basically regulate your property away without paying for it so long as it doesn't wipe out the total value of the land. So what does that mean? That that means that if government completely forbids you from using your property, then it's it's got to pay you for it. It's got to pay you just compensation. But the rule has evolved through the courts that if it if government prevents you from using only part of your property and it leaves you with some value in your property, then it isn't really a taking and government doesn't have to pay you at all. That is extremely bad for private property rights. And essentially what that means is that government could take away, say, 70% of your property's value and and pay you nothing for doing that. You can see all the perverse incentives that this creates, and this means that government doesn't have to think twice about regulation. But so now we have something that lawyers call the denominator problem. That's what was at issue in the Murr case. So if government, say, entirely forbids you from using 10% of your property, what does that mean? Does that count as a total wipeout of your rights of that 10% of the property? Or does that only mean that the government has taken away 10% of your rights? of the whole property. Sounds confusing, but it's extremely important because that's what was at issue in the Murr case. So here's what happened. There's a Wisconsin family. They owned two completely separate parcels of land, and they just happened to be right next to each other in Wisconsin. The land got passed down to the children, and the family decided that they wanted to sell property A. So we've got property A and property B, two totally separate pieces of property next to each other. The family decided they wanted to sell property A and use that money so that they could fix up the family cabin that was on property B next door. The government made up this rule that said that the family couldn't do anything at all with property A. They couldn't sell it, and they couldn't even really make any productive use of it. And so the Murr family said, well, you've taken away the entire value of property A. You've said we can do nothing with property A. You have rendered it useless. That is a taking. You've wiped out the entire value of that property, and you have to pay for it. And the government said, well, since both of these properties happen to be owned by the same family, the Murr family, they just pretended that those two totally separate properties, property A and property B, were actually one property. And since the regulations only applied to property A, then they're not taking away 100% of the value. And basically, the MERS are SOL. That's what that case was about. It's this legal fiction that only a lawyer could, could appreciate, that the government just made up what they were going to consider that entire parcel of property. And by the flick of a pen, essentially, took away these property rights from this family and said they didn't have to pay them anything in return. You know, basically, this is the gov- This means that the government can avoid paying property owners for taking their land just because the property owners happen to own the lot next door. And it, it was really an outrageous proposition. And the Supreme Court uh, said, yep, that's perfectly fine. And it was a five to three opinion. And we mentioned earlier in the Kelo case that Kennedy was the swing vote. Unfortunately, he was the swing vote here as well. He authored the opinion in in the Merck decision. And he said, yep, that's perfectly fine. The reason that it's okay for government to to say that these two separate properties are actually going to be considered as one property for purposes of this takings analysis, that's okay because, well, it's really important for the courts to, to give bureaucrats 
Democrats flexibility. I'm not, I'm not, that's not my word. That's Justice Kennedy's word. Flexibility. He said government needs flexibility to adjust rights for the public good. And in order to give government flexibility to adjust rights for the public good, we've got to defer to what government decides the types of rules that they want to make for our property rights. This is absolutely terrifying. I mean, the result of this case is really to say that government has absolute power to redefine our individual rights. The Constitution, in no uncertain terms, says when the government takes away your private property rights, it must be for a public purpose, and it must pay you for those rights. And what Justice Kennedy is saying is that what we're going to do is we're going to defer to the government so that from time to time it can reshape and reimagine these rights if it suits the government's end. That is the very definition of tyranny. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning.